You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Trevor Morin and Bill Dunbar. They're co-founders of uh, Two Poor Guys. The website is twopoorguys.com, and poor not meaning no money, but poor meaning uh, like a pores of, of skin in your face, for instance, so it's P-O-R-E, so uh, T-W-O-P-O-R-E-G-U-I-Y-S.com. So Trevor and Bill, thanks for coming. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, so what's the... Uh, the the premise of uh, Two Poor Guys? The premise is we build um, technology products that leverage uh, this thing called nanopores, and that's the P-O-R-E reference, nanopores, uh, that do single molecule sensing. And we leverage single molecule sensing for a variety of diagnostic applications in agriculture, uh, human, could be animal, could be a lot of different uh, use cases. So it's, it's really a platform method of doing sensing and analysis. So is it, uh, you know, since you're all platforms about single molecule sensing, you know, I don't know, but I would guess that's a very difficult thing to do up until now. Uh, that's accurate. I, I think people, uh, particularly in the research world, have wanted to examine how molecules behave at the single molecule level for a long time. Mm. And there's some fairly complex instrumentation out there to do that in a variety of ways. And the nanopore is is an interesting kind of riff on that because it, it, it doesn't tell you a whole lot about the molecule in its sort of native okay. form, but it's very cheap and it's very fast. So the so really it's just the, like a very is it like a tiny opening, a tiny gateway or a pore that allows right. only one molecule to go through at a time? That's exactly right. Yeah. And 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 as you said, fast and it's an electrical signal. So you're only implicitly uh saying that you saw a molecule. You it's not like you had a photograph or an image, you know. Uh but but you do get this signal and really the strength of the company from an IP point of view is the things that we do to a sample uh, so that when the target or targets that you're interested in go through that cheap, fast sensor, you get enough information out of that signal to make inferences for so diagnostic. Maybe I'll so just is add. Each taken is the port taking just one molecule and that's it and it closes or does it gate it so that it takes in one at a time and 
sends it through some kind of flow analysis. Yeah, it's always open. Uh, so you're, it, it's more like sand through the hourglass a little bit, although it's not flowing continuously. Um, molecules randomly are captured by a voltage and pulled through that pore, which is otherwise always open and always conducting current. Um, huh. And it's only when that single molecule goes through that you'll see a, an attenuation in the current transiently. But how do you, what about a, does this work for polar and nonpolar molecules? And, you know, what if you have uh, three different kinds of molecules or a hundred different kinds in a medium? How do you know you've got the right one? Yeah, that, well, that's the art, right? So, so we play yeah. with the buffer, we can tune pH, we can tune temperature, we can tune voltage, we know the charge of the surface of the nanopore itself. We turn all the knobs from an engineering and biochemistry know-how point of view, such that the things we are interested in are capturable and differentially detectable. And everything else looks relatively either uh, different enough or, because of the polarity issue, doesn't even go near the pore. Well, what if you wanted to, uh, I don't know, study a, a substance that had two nonpolar molecules, let's say carbon dioxide and something else, and you wanted to look at each one individually? Could you do it, or you can only look at polar molecules? They'll be influenced by a current. Right. So if a, if a molecule doesn't have charge and therefore... Um, wouldn't necessarily go through the pore as it enters the electric field. We can add reagents that would specifically bind to molecules of interest, adding that charge to them, uh, thereby mm. now allow them to be driven through the pore. Uh, maybe I'll back up one step and, and clarify that the sweet spot for our technology isn't detecting gases, as, as you suggest, with carbon dioxide or oxygen, but larger molecules. Uh, whether it be analytes, metabolites, drug molecules, proteins, peptides, or even more commonly, DNA or RNA sequences. Uh, so being able to identify pathogens, viral or bacterial, for example, based on their mm -hmm. nucleic acid content, based on their DNA or RNA-specific sequence. That, that's really the sweet spot of our technology, as opposed to blood gas, okay. for example. So it's in liquid form that uh, you'd be able to suck stuff into the nanopores, right? Correct. It is. And if it isn't in a liquid form in its natural state, we can put it in a liquid form if we're dealing uh, for an ag application, let's say, where we take a sample of a leaf, we can mm -hmm. um, grind it in extraction buffer and put that crude sample into uh, a prep cartridge, thereby having a liquid form by the time it hits the nanopore. So do you, you have like an array of, you know, billions of nanopores and you look at the attenuation and how it's different across each nanopore to see what each one's sucked in? Or do you have just one or two? Yeah, it's usually a one or two thing. Uh, we're, we're not a high density array like ion torrent trying to do sequencing. We're a, a low density, modest plexing, you know, anywhere from one to 20 on a cartridge um, and, and however many nanopores you need to support that. A single nanopore generally can resolve up to three or maybe even five different targets from a given sample. So you may want to add more than that for a few reasons, right? If you're multiplexing beyond that or if you want redundancy 
to enhance the quantitative power of the analytics, for example? Well, I mean, in biological systems, I would think that it's rare that you have just, again, one type of molecule. So how do you, again, how, if you only have one or two pores with a sample, how would you know that you got the, the particular molecule you're looking for? Yeah, so it, it, it's, I think it's helpful to think of this in terms of hypothesis testing as the framework within which someone would want to use our technology. So that is, you have a test you're performing, you already know what you're looking for. Uh, and let's say it's a panel for uh, some infections, right? Some set of infections, uh, infectious diseases. And you'll, you'll, the chemistry is already established to have a high sensitivity and specificity for that target if it's present in that sample. So now you're just doing either yes, it was there, or no, it wasn't. Or in some use cases, you want to know a relative amount of a target compared to either another target or some endogenous reference molecule. But in, in all cases, we're, we're tipping the scale such that the nanopore can pick it up if it's there. Uh, that okay, your so, uh, what happens once um, you know, a molecule is sucked into the nanopore? Where does it go? And then what? It goes into the ether. <laughs> you never see it again. <laughs> the nanopore goes, hum, 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 and it burps. Yeah, exactly. Eats it. No, yeah, wait, wait, where does it go? What happens, you know? Yeah, so, so typically, right, there's, there's uh, 10 to the, I don't know, 10 to the 10 copies uh, of, uh, let's say, all molecules in this chamber above the pore, and there's some critical mass of the ones you're looking for and the nanopore will capture about a molecule every second or sometimes a few per second mm. and so once any one of those molecules goes through that nanopore it's now on the other side of our chip essentially in an infinite volume uh, even though it's a few microliters compared to the size of the molecule it's infinity and you never see it again, right? It was the polarity of the voltage that pulled it from the one chamber to the other. And now it's actually, for, for uh, you know, field force reasons, impossible to go back the other way. Uh, so, so you're just seeing new copies of different molecules, uh, one after the other, serially. And after a few okay. minutes, you've seen hundreds to thousands of these molecules, and you have uh, some machine learning, or maybe a heuristic algorithm, depending on the use case, we have both, uh, that, that says, I saw this critical mass of these two targets, here's how much we think there is, and these other ones didn't show up at all, so they're negatives. Okay, so, hmm, I see, which I see why you're saying the hourglass example makes a lot of sense. So, how can you tell what has gone through the pore? I know you know, but... Can you correlate the degree of attenuation of the si of the signal with? Does every molecule have its own unique like attenuation signal, or how do you know what's going through it? Correct. Yeah, that that's the numbers game that we're playing, right? Um, we're we're molecules will be binned according to either uh, a model that was established through support vector machine or machine learning that, that, that characterizes every event by some number of parameters. Um, or sometimes there's very simple tests 
tests where you're just looking for this particular, you know, tuberculosis target uh, or, or two targets. And the nature of those targets, they're distinct enough from the nanopore electrical signal sense that it's a very easy, you know, yes, no question against uh, another control, endogenous control or spiked control that's in there. So, so we're, we're obviously very uh, skilled at creating that, that kind of table lookup uh, in, in nanoport event space to say what you've seen against, again, a finite set of hypotheses. But essentially, you're trying to become the another type of, and not not gas chromatograph, but you're you're becoming another method of assay that's just like a gas chromatograph. Like each molecule, I would think you'd build up a library of the attenuation signatures of each molecule, and over time, you'd have this huge library, and it actually would become a standard over time. Oh, you know this this method of analysis here's its standard attenuation, and we have you know like. All scientists know this, and they reference it. And is that where this is going, in one way? No, it's not exactly that. Because remember, there's not a one-to-one -one mapping between target and nanopore event space, except in that confined menu for that particular set of hypotheses. In, in, in other words, you might have one test where the model is looking for three particular infections. Right, and the model now has these three sort of buckets for the targets and what their electrical profile is. And part of the formula, as Trevor said before, we engineer molecules that essentially facilitate that binning that bind to those targets. In a totally separate oh, yeah. test, okay. you can actually reuse those engineered molecules that now, really, the only difference is they're now have an affinity for a different target. But otherwise, they give you the same sort of letter in the alphabet in that binning of nanopore events. So you don't need this, you know, infinitely expanding category search space because you can reuse the real estate uh, in nanopore event space, right? The hypothesis might only ever get to 20 targets, let's say. And so we can we can always reuse the spots that aren't being used because nobody's looking for tuberculosis in a in a you know cotton test right where you're testing cotton yeah, but, in a particular but, but, virus. but wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice if you could do that? Then you don't have to uh, know ahead of time what you should expect. You can just run it, and whatever comes through the nanopore, you oh that signal means this, this signal means that, and it seems like that would be a, a much more expanded better use of it, if, if it could be done. I mean, I'm just putting it out there. For sure, yeah. There's, there's I, I think for, at least the way we think about it from a productization and strategy point of view, rather than trying to make the universal, you know, molecule, nanopore categorizing tool, uh, which would be interesting, um, we're trying to solve specific problems where they need a field deployable product that can give high accuracy uh, fast and answer these specific quantitative questions, right? So what's, what's the accuracy, that, that a certain molecule is there or not? Or is it the concentrations of certain molecules? Like, where does the superior accuracy from this method come from? 
You want to do some talking? <laughs> sure. So, <clears throat> as Bill described before, the molecule is a single, or the nanopore is a single molecule counter molecules passing through it serially. Uh, and so right. that gives you that higher accuracy in that you're actually doing single molecule counting uh, using a, really a, just a, an electrical output as opposed to the majority of lab instruments that look at an optical signal, which is generally a, an aggregate fluorescence signal. And so by, by being able to do the single molecule counting, you do get that superior accuracy. Um, and that shouldn't be confused with also limits of detection. And so when you talk about how sensitive can the test be, uh, and that really comes back to our ability to design reagents that are very sensitive or and, and specific, designed to have sensitivity and specificity. So even if your target is in your sample at a very low abundance, our reagents are able to bind to it specifically and then increase mm. or amplify the signal uh, such that you're counting those molecules through the pore and giving you that accuracy. But I, And I also think okay, part okay. of your question was the, the qualitative versus quantitative and and both are possible with our uh, workflow. So, like, I just had a blood test done, and I, I don't know what they were, you know, I don't know. One of the factors was, like, uh, picograms per deciliter, and they only went to a certain limit below which they couldn't see the substance. So your solution, for instance, could have a much lower theoretical limit of being able to see something in blood or something in some other kind of uh, sample. Is that accurate to say? Yes. Okay. Good. <laughs> I don't mean to grill you. I'm just trying to get a, a, a good understanding of this. So I, you know. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's okay. Okay. And um, is your so your system uh, you have to bind to certain reagents, or can you just let the native um, molecules go through the nanopore, or do you always have to bind something to them? Yeah, like you alluded to before, you can let those native molecules go through the pore, but the pore doesn't give you the resolution different to differentiate one molecule from the other. Generally, they, they give you that same signal as they go through. And so by having those uh, molecules that bind with high uh, specificity to your targets, that's what enables you to have those uh, differentiator so you know it's your target molecule going through the pore and you can detect it. Okay. All right, gotcha. Um, I know in chemistry there are like enantiomers, you know, molecules that are left or right-handed. Can you uh, differentiate between those, or are there certain kind of molecules that uh, you can differentiate that no other method can differentiate? Sure. So, yeah, with the case of enantiomers, if there's a binding agent that specifically binds to one form or the other, uh, then absolutely. So we would use that as the, the selectivity agent that binds specifically to the molecule of interest, such that when it passes through the pore, we would detect, say, the left-handed form as opposed to the right-handed. Okay. And you know, where, where do you see that your system really shines? I guess one way is that it can detect levels of substances far lower than other systems. Um, you know, what are the ways in which it's, uh, it's a better assay than what's out there right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it it really shines in three different ways. Uh, one, um, as we've been alluding to, it's an electrical counter as opposed to optical, and it does so with these nanopore chips that are small and rugged so they can be packaged into microfluidic cassettes. So this really opens the door to have an instrument that can go anywhere. It can work at low and middle income settings, remote settings, so you can still do diagnostic testing, high precision diagnostic testing, 
you know, far from any type of centralized lab or even a pop-up clinic type environment. Uh, the second is the same sensor, the nanopore itself, detects both protein or other target analytes, as we would call them, drug molecules, metabolites, but also the nucleic acid of, a, of an organism. So that's the DNA or the RNA, which gives uh, really just a ton of information about what you're looking at, if it's uh, infectious tuberculosis versus not infectious, whether it's drug resistant or not. You can get all of that information out of the DNA. And so by having a sensor that can do really those two large classes, it's what we'd call multimodal or multiomic, where it can do both um, molecular testing for DNA or RNA, but at the same time uh, look at target proteins or, or, or metabolites, as I mentioned. So that's a, a second point. Uh, and then again, yeah, the, the accuracy that we can get with single molecule counting really is superior to other quantitative methods that are out there. Um, qPCR is a very typical method to do infectious disease viral load, for example, HIV viral load. It's one that's central, only available in a really a centralized lab, and also one that isn't as accurate as a single molecule counting approach like the nanopore gives you. Hmm. Okay. Um, so why is, is it easy for you to create these nanopores? Like, can you create a gigantic array of them? Or is it, yeah. I mean, if you're counting like one molecule a second, why not have an array of 10,000 of these things that goes in two seconds and counts everything in the sample? Yeah, I mean, that's a, uh, like I said, an uh, interesting thought exercise is, is the expandability of this uh, and what's possible. But to come back to your first question, yeah, the chips we make at wafer scale and we're working with uh, partners in the semiconductor space to to make that uh, a high volume uh, capable process. Um, and it, it it really is uh, a very simple, you know, when when it's well engineered, it's a very simple uh, fabrication requirement process, and can be very cost effective to make uh, many 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 chips per wafer. And, uh, and, you know, let's say uh, 10 chips goes into a consumable for a particular multiplexed menu. Uh, as we look at the price, as, you know, you ramp up uh, generating these consumables, the chips themselves will be a, a, uh, a fraction of the COGS and the total cost. And, and so it's, it's a very scalable method. Uh, which is required to to really have a, a clear business case to support a given uh, market that you're going to go after. And frankly, that's okay. that's kind of what's missing in a lot of the the thought exercises and research that go on in research institutions, right? Universities, where Trevor and I both have spent a lot of time on that side of it, and you'll you might have the greatest fastest most accurate thing out there but if you can't make it beyond the scale that a few labs can utilize it then it's probably not going to matter so it, it has to be it has to meet this scalability requirement and um and so that's that really is uh why why I think a lot of people who came to the company early and why recruiting for us has always been um it's compelling, right? Because there's the story that we've talked about so far on this podcast of what you could do with the thing. And then it's, well, how, how can you, 
how, what does it look like to actually make the thing at a scale where you can make an impact? And the simplicity of the sensor and the fact that it that it works uh, in a scalable fashion is uh, it's critical. Okay. And then, um, you know, I guess I'm asking for a lot by asking for all these things, but uh, what, what is the uh, range of molecule sizes that can go through the pore? And would it make sense to have a series of pores of different sizes so you, you know, suck the molecule in and then send it through a maze that, you know, silos it further by size or by other characteristics? Um, so, so as far as size range goes, we have ways of modifying the buffer to, to uh, make it easier to see uh, smaller things. Um, larger things are also sometimes interesting for different applications. Um, generally speaking, uh, DNA, RNA, these are the targets of choice for the nanopore and the assays that we uh, are, are spend most of our time on. And so maybe I'll mention the nanopore size we generally use is, is large uh, compared to other researchers using nanopores. Ours are tens of nanometers. And so at that size, you can fit full proteins through mac protein complexes, uh, larger structures, so not as big as a, bac a whole bacteria or a whole cell, but uh, certainly large enough to fit larger macromolecular complexes through the nanopore very comfortably. Uh, so it really is a wide range of sizes, everything from that small molecule that's a few um, hundreds of Daltons all the way up to um, megadaltons. Okay. So what's, what's the timetable for... Um for getting this into production and working on larger sample sizes and really getting it out there everywhere. Yeah, so we with with the uh, the current cu few customers we have uh, and the versatility of the the product that we're making for them, we will have a field testing. Let's call it a beta unit. Um, let's see. It's funny. We just did this thought exercise. Uh, I would say about. Two years from now, somewhere between now and two years from now, will be something that's being uh, tested in the field in uh, appreciable volumes. Okay. Is it, um, is it necessary to use like microfluidic, you know, channels along with the nanopore? Or is this like a system that could operate without them? No, that is part of the envisioned uh, use is... Within a, a single consumable, you have what you need for prep, uh, any amplification if it's required through PCR or any other amplification method, and then some number of nanopore chips. And microfluidics does make sense in that context. Okay. Well, very good. So what's, what's the best way for folks to learn more and you know, maybe see what one looks like and uh, you know, speak to you guys about collaboration or questions? Yeah, I think obviously through the website, we've got a sketch of the technology areas where we've already demonstrated uh, feasibility. And and I think in the coming months, there'll be more information on the website regarding our uh, productization strategy and uh, obviously to the extent that it makes sense to share it publicly in a format like that. But um, I think that's the best place to start papers and the and the website. Okay. Well, very good. Well, guys, I know I question you to death, but I uh, I appreciate you being on the podcast, and it's it's a really interesting idea. 
I don't know if I communicated that. I just asked questions, but I think it's a really great invention you guys have made, and uh, it's going to be super beneficial in the future. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Rich. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.